0: On behalf of the National Park Service and Rock Creek Park, we welcome you to a self guided tour of historic Fort Stevens. Fort Stevens served as the focal point for defending Washington, D.C. during a Confederate attack in July of 1864 and is one of nine Civil War installations under the stewardship of Rock Creek Park. On this tour, You will learn the role that the fort served during the Battle of Fort Stevens and hear the incredible stories of sacrifice and struggle of those individuals that worked and lived here. To begin the tour, stand at the corner of Georgia Avenue and Quackenbow Street. Prior to the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861, the area around Fort Stevens was a tranquil, picturesque farming community, a far cry from the teeming metropolis that one now sees along Georgia Avenue. Try to remove the traffic, the storefronts, and all of the paved surfaces from your mind and attempt a glimpse at the land as it was in the 1850s and early 1860s. Georgia Avenue, which was then called the 7th Street Pike, was a wide, dirt-trodden road that served as a major thoroughfare that connected southern Maryland to the federal city, Washington, D.C. Alongside the road, you would have seen farmers molding the gentle rolling hillsides into orchards and pastures. Known as the community of Brightwood, the area was a quiet, rural neighborhood that seemed a world apart from the White House and the Capitol building located about five miles away. But the arguments and intrigue that occurred in 1860 and early 1861 in downtown Washington and throughout America soon transformed the peaceful community of Brightwood into an important military outpost sworn to protect Washington DC. When the state of Virginia seceded in 1861, shortly after the Civil War began, newly elected President Abraham Lincoln realized that Washington DC must defend itself at all costs. To make matters more pressing, the state of Maryland, particularly southern Maryland, had thoughts of seceding as well. So defending Washington not only involved defending itself from Virginia on the opposite side of the Potomac River, but also from Maryland. Because of this, a series of fortifications had to be built to encompass the entirety of Washington, D.C. from any and all invaders. It would be a monumental task unparalleled in world history to transform Washington DC into the most fortified city in the world but where would these forts be built and more importantly who would build them after the Civil War broke out in April of 1861 President Lincoln called for over 75,000 volunteers to put down the rebellion for most of these newly formed regiments and militias The first place they came to was Washington, D.C. But once these soldiers arrived into the city, they quickly realized that there was, at least for the present time, no enemy to fight. So the soldiers put down their rifles and picked up shovels, axes, and hammers to build the defenses of Washington. In all, 68 forts were constructed. In between the forts, 93 batteries were built, along with miles upon miles of rifle pits and roadways to connect the defenses. Across Georgia Avenue, facing the east and less than half a mile away, is Fort Slocum. Beyond that, Forts Totten, Slimmer, Bunker Hill, and Saratoga. Facing the west and guarding the Rock Creek Valley is Fort DeRussy. Beyond that, Forts Kearney, Reno, and Bayer. In most cases, the lands were privately owned. These lands were confiscated by the federal government with the assurance that after the war had ended, the land would be returned to the owners. In most circumstances, financial compensation was also promised for the use of the land. Standing at the corner of Georgia Avenue and Quackenbow Street, you will see the Emory United Methodist Church. It was here that the story of Fort Stevens began. Originally, the fort was called Fort Massachusetts, named after the state of origin of those soldiers who built it, the 10th Massachusetts Infantry. However, regiments from New York and Rhode Island also participated in the construction of Fort Massachusetts. Once completed, Fort Massachusetts boasted nine cannon that had a range of over two miles. In September of 1861, a wife of a New York officer of the 65th New York Infantry wrote a letter home which talks of those early days of Fort Massachusetts and the forts in the adjacent area.
1: Camp Middleton, Washington, D.C., September 7th, 1861. Dear mother and brother, there are quite near us three fortifications within sight, two of which are very large and seem impregnable. We visited them. One is named Fort Bunker Hill, another Saratoga, and I forget the other. We then drove to Fort Slocum, which was built by a Rhode Island regiment, who are encamped by it and who gained permission to have it named after their colonel, who was killed at Bull Run. The next we saw was Fort Massachusetts, built by Colonel Hines' regiment from New York, who are right on the opposite side of the wall. They are indignant that it's not called New York. Mrs. S. and I told them we were from the city, and the men seemed delighted to see us. The fort encloses a little brick church, which will, of course, be torn down if there is any trouble. The guns are already mounted and guarded.
0: After the war had ended, this section of the fort was returned to the church. Fort Massachusetts was leveled to the ground, and the Emory Church was rebuilt. Walking along the perimeter of the church, you may make out the subtle outline of Fort Massachusetts, but the fort only remained this size for a brief period of time. By early 1863, Fort Massachusetts had doubled in size and was renamed Fort Stevens. To learn more about Fort Stevens, begin walking west down Quackenbow Street and head into the fort. While walking into the parade ground of Fort Stevens, stop for a moment and look around the surrounding area. Prior to the construction of this portion of the fort, this land belonged to a free black woman named Elizabeth Thomas. As was the case for the church, Miss Thomas, affectionately called Aunt Betty, was forced from her home for the fort's construction. With just a matter of moments, she had just enough time to gather her six-month-old child and a few belongings before her home was destroyed. Years later, Miss Thomas recounted that fateful day.
2: Now, the soldiers camped here at this time were mostly German, I could not understand them, not even the officers, but when they began taking out my furniture and tearing down our house, hmm, I understood. By the evening, I was sitting under that sycamore tree, my only house, with what furniture I had left around me. I was crying, as was my six-month-old child, which I had in my arms, when a tall, slender man dressed in black came up to me and said to me,
0: It is hard but you shall reap a great reward.
2: It was President Lincoln.
0: Elizabeth Thomas lived next to Fort Stevens until her death in 1917. She was 87 years old. It is thought that her home was located across from the fort in the community garden that lines 13th Street. Later on, as you tour the front and outer perimeter of the fort, you will see the garden area thought to be where Miss Thomas lived during the time of the Civil War. The history of African-Americans and Fort Stevens are intertwined. In addition to the soldiers, contracted slaves and runaway contrabands were used in the fort's construction. The names of these individuals are unknown, but their contributions to the fort were immeasurable. After the District of Columbia Emancipation Act of 1862, Slaves and contrabands from Maryland would flee into Washington, D.C. with hopes of liberation and freedom from human bondage and unjust treatment. Even though Maryland was a slave-owning state, it remained in the Union. Legally speaking, the soldiers inside these forts were bound by law to return the slaves and contrabands fleeing from Maryland back to their owners. Soldiers were pressed into strong moral decisions when incidents like this would occur. In late 1862, such a case happened at Fort Stevens.
3: October 8, 1862. Yesterday noon, a contraband came into camp full tilt, running as hard as he ever could, three men on horseback with revolvers after him. He had got away from his master's a month ago and was at work for a man a mile from here. He was in the barn, and he saw these men coming in. His master asked if he was ready to go home. He said he was not. "'but reckoned he should have to, "'and jumped down through the trapdoor into the stable below "'and so out the men after him. "'They found they could not catch him and went for their horses. "'They got ahead and waited for him at a toll gate. "'He saw them coming and traveled over the lots, "'they over the fence and after him. "'He was afraid they would shoot him, but got into our camp. "'The men hollering, Stop him, stop him! "'But our boys did not see it in that light.' And the fellow is with us now. He is quite bright, about 18, can read some, is very handy. He was not a slave, but legally bound out, and his master wanted to sell his time. He did not just know what would become of him, and skedaddled.
0: The young man was known as Billy. Billy served the soldiers at the fort and eventually spoke of wanting to join the black regiments being organized in Washington, D.C., However, it is unknown if Billy ever joined one of these regiments. Billy's story was told through an eyewitness account by an officer stationed at the fort. His name was Aldous Walker. Walker was part of the 1st Vermont Heavy Artillery, and it was this regiment that constructed the majority of Fort Stevens. Arriving at Fort Massachusetts on September 1st, 1862, The 1st Vermont Heavy Artillery provided the majority of sweat and labor to transform Fort Massachusetts into a formidable fortification. Next to the flagpole in Fort Stevens, you will see a relief map of the fort. In the right corner of that map, you will see Fort Massachusetts and how large of an addition to the fort the 1st Vermont constructed. An additional 11 cannon mounts were added to bring the total to 20 cannon for the fort. Unlike the original 9-cannon inside Fort Massachusetts, the new cannon that were added had an effective range of over 4 miles. Seated on two of the gun platforms inside the fort, you will see replica 30-pound Parrot rifles. Named after its inventor, Robert Parker Parrott. these cannon could hurdle bullet-shaped projectiles well into Maryland at an invading army. A large powder magazine was also built to protect gunpowder from rain and moisture. Ventilation pipes were also placed into the powder magazine to allow air to flow freely throughout the structure. In addition to the backbreaking work inside the fort, the 1st Vermont Heavy Artillery also constructed permanent barracks for the troops across Quackenbow Street, where the Church of the Nativity Rectory is located today. Again, Aldous Walker. December 8, 1862.
3: Our quarters are built of stockades, or logs on end, faced on the inside, chinked with moss, and roofed with boards. The barracks are 60 by 21 for each company. Space is economized by building the bunks with alcoves, and the men are all astonished to find out how comfortably they are situated in comparison with the usual crowding of seven into a wedge tent, seven feet square. The officers will pass the winter under canvas.
0: The 1st Vermont Heavy Artillery was originally designated as an infantry regiment. It was here on these gun mounts Aldous Walker and his comrades learned the art of artillery fire for close to two years. When you stand next to one of the cannon and look northward, imagine being part of one of the gun crews. The only houses that you would have seen for miles are a few farmhouses scattered across the landscape. Almost all the trees had been cut down to give you a maximum field of view. You can look for miles into southern Maryland, where perhaps the enemy might appear. April 19,
3: 1863. Yesterday we had the first of our target practices at the fort, blazing away a good many times and with pretty good success. It was quite satisfactory on the whole and I presume we shall repeat it before long. The day was cloudy, but good enough, and I find that it is no hard matter to see any kind of shot after one learns how. It is rather noisy fun, but we don't think there's any danger in it, at least for those in the fort. We can make it pretty hot for an enemy in front, though, and I would rather see balls go than come.
0: Just weeks before the 1st Vermont Heavy Artillery began learning the art of artillery in April 1863, Fort Massachusetts was renamed to Fort Stevens, named after Brigadier General Isaac Ingle Stevens, who was killed at the Battle of Chantilly in Virginia on September 1st, 1862. Prior to the Civil War, Isaac Stevens had served as governor of the Washington Territory. As the months dragged on, the 1st Vermont grew proficient and deadly accurate with the guns of Fort Stevens. Still, as able and ready as they were to defend Washington from an invasion, the men grew restless on their post as battles raged elsewhere. The tedium of marching, drilling, marching again, drilling again, would come to an abrupt end in the spring of 1864. Orders were cut and the first Vermont heavy artillery were finally going to the fight.
3: Sunday, May 8, 1864. We feel more and more our liability to leave these diggings. In fact, the new Massachusetts Heavy Artillery Regiment, now at Alexandria, is rumored to be the one about to relieve us. Two regiments of the Invalid Corps are also coming in here. Of course I shall go to work at once and make all necessary preparations for a start. We can't tell when we shall go or where but without doubt we shall move soon and somewhere. Across the river, Colonel Haskins says. I am feeling very well and quite ready to be sent
0: somewhere. The 1st Vermont Heavy Artillery would return to Washington, D.C. just two months later to aid in the Battle of Fort Stevens. During the battle, they would not see combat at this fort. They would see combat in front of Fort Reno near Tenleytown. It would be the regiment that assumed control of Fort Stevens after the 1st Vermont that took the brunt of the battle. To the extreme right of the earthworks of the fort, you will see a route which will take you to the front of Fort Stevens. Going to the front of the fort, you will see what over 15,000 Confederate soldiers faced as they tried to take Washington, D.C. in mid-July of 1864. Continuing along the outer perimeter of the fort, it will take you back to Quackenbow Street and once again inside Fort Stevens. Once you are standing in front of the fort and are in direct line of the flagpole, the story of the Battle of Fort Stevens will begin. In the early spring of 1864, The war front looked rather bleak for the Confederate States of America. Union General Ulysses S. Grant had amassed an army of over 100,000 Union troops and was pressing into the Shenandoah Valley and the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia. The majority of the regiments that were stationed in Washington, D.C.'s defenses were pulled out to aid in this campaign. The Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia and the adjacent town of Petersburg, Virginia were under siege. Confederate President Jefferson C. Davis and his commanding general Robert E. Lee realized that if the Union troops were not pulled out of the valley, soon Richmond would fall and the war would come to an end. A daring tactic was devised. Have a small Confederate army of about 20,000 leave Richmond and head northward while simultaneously attacking the outer fringes of the Union forces. It was hoped that if the Union would chase this bold army, it would relieve pressure off of Richmond. If lucky, perhaps this army could lead the Union out of Virginia altogether. And it was possible, just possible, this army could attack Washington, D.C. itself. It was a bold plan, to say the least. To lead this army, Lee needed a cunning and shrewd commander. He found that leader and General Jubal Anderson Early. Jubal Early was regarded by Lee as his bad old man. It was an aptly named title. Early had participated in the majority of the most renowned battles of the Civil War, and Early had distinguished himself in battle time and time again. Leaving Richmond in June of 1864, with portions of the now-deceased Thomas Stonewall Jackson's Brigade, early began his campaign on the Union forces throughout the valley. Spreading his men thinly and attacking at any and every possible target, his battle-honed and battle-hardened army of 20,000 was thought by Union forces to exceed forty to 60,000. While still in the valley, Confederate General John Cable Breckinridge, former Vice President of the United States, joined up with Early as he continued northward through the Shenandoah Valley and into Maryland. Washington, D.C., unaware that it was the prime target of Early's campaign, listened to the reports from the Valley and anxiously waited to see what would happen with this mystery army that was heading their way. On July 9, 1864, Jubal Early's troops engaged Union General Lew Wallace's division at Monocacy Creek, Maryland with Monocacy being less than 50 miles away from Washington, D.C., those in this city realized all too late that they were to be attacked. Since almost all of the veteran troops and regiments, like the 1st Vermont Heavy Artillery, had been pulled out of Washington to engage in the Shenandoah Valley and Richmond campaigns, who was guarding Washington, D.C.? More importantly, who was inside Fort Stevens? Enter the 100-day men of the 150th Ohio Volunteer Infantry. As the name implies, the 150th Ohio Volunteer Infantry was a regiment organized to serve no more than 100 days. These were the men guarding the northern defenses of Washington and Fort Stevens. A hodgepodge assortment, the 100-day men were composed of old, young, ill-trained, and in some cases, severely ill soldiers. These are the men who will fight against one of the most heralded Confederate armies of the Civil War. At Fort Stevens, Company K of the 150th OVI are manning the guns. They are students from Oberlin College. Now, in addition to the Oberlin students, Washington had recruited every and any able body to defend the city. Government employees, teamsters, and laborers were called forth in the form of the Quartermaster's Corps. Previously wounded soldiers who were unable to take the rigors of fighting elsewhere were called forth in the form of the Veterans Reserve Corps. Lastly, convalescent soldiers from the hospitals in D.C. were called forth as well. Limping, hobbling, and crawling, these men headed north of the Capitol and manned the area around Fort Stevens and the adjacent fortifications. Then they waited for Early's troops to arrive they did not have long to wait. Private William Leach, a member of the 150th OVI, was reconnoitering the area just a mile or so in front of the fort with three other soldiers in the early morning hours of July 11th. At the same time, Jubal Early's forces were making their way along the 7th Street Pike and heading towards Fort Stevens. James C. Cannon was a member of the 150th Ohio Volunteer Infantry, his memoirs vividly recall what happened next. This post was
4: located on a road which branched off from the 7th Street northeasterly. Corporal Hudson was in charge and with him were Hinman, Hammond, and Leach. It appears that the cavalry, after seeing the Vedette and Silver Spring pickets retreat, dismounted and worked their way slowly along both sides of 7th Street. Before they were in sight, Leach had received permission to take the canteens to fill them at a house back a short distance on the road to the fort and in a field between this road and 7th Street. After he had left, Corporal Hudson noticed that the sound of the skirmishing seemed to be coming through the scrub till he could see the open field. He found that the enemy's skirmish line was nearer the fort than his position in between him and 7th Street. He would probably be cut off from Fort Stevens, but decided in that case to withdraw to Fort Slemmer. While thinking this over, he was startled by a cry from the road, about two-thirds of the way to the house. We found Leech shot through the thigh and bowels while down across the fields were the rebel skirmishers leisurely advancing toward the fort on a line that would pass us. As they had fired across at Leech, it did not seem safe to stay there with a wounded man. Two Union cavalrymen were with them, who had come in shortly before, and one of them took Leech on his horse and by an eastward turn, reached Fort Slocum. Leach's wound was mortal, and though he was kindly nursed by Comrade Wildman, he died on the 13th, having crowned his service with the sacrifice of his life for his
0: country. The Battle of Fort Stevens had begun. Its first casualty, Private William Leach, was the first wounded soldier. Many more would be wounded before this battle would end, and, like Leach, Many would be killed or die from their wounds. Private William Leach, a student of Oberlin College, was only 20 years old. Although the battle is known as the Battle of Fort Stevens, it should be noted that Early's forces were not all entirely in front of Fort Stevens. The main contingent of his forces were most definitely in front of Fort Stevens, but expeditionary forces from Tenleytown at Fort Reno all the way across to Fort Totten were probing to find a weak link in the defenses of Washington. With Early's men spread out over several miles, panic spread throughout the entire city as citizens and soldiers alike feared an attack. Soldiers were given contradictory orders, and confusion reigned for the Union on the battlefield and inside the forts. Throughout the day, the battle line wavered back and forth in front of Fort Stevens. Fort Slocum and DeRussi aided in the defense of Fort Stevens, but even though the cannon of these three forts hammered into Early's troops, Early's resilient and determined forces came within 50 yards of Fort Stevens.
2: Signal Station, Washington DC, July 11th, 1864.
3: I have just received the following message. The enemy is within 20 rods of Fort Stevens.
2: Washington DC, July 11th, 1864, 1.20 PM.
4: Keep horses enough to mount all of your dismounted men. Dismounted men here have been sent to the field. We cannot give them to you. The main body of the enemy appears to be an
2: R firm. Signal Station, Washington, D.C., July 11th, 1864.
0: My dismounted cavalry are mostly out of ammunition. I wish you would send me some of all calibers.
2: Washington, D.C., July 11th, 1864. We have five times as many generals here as we want, but are greatly in need of privates. Anyone volunteering in that capacity would be thankfully received. Fort Stevens, July 11th. 1864, 410 p.m. The enemy has been close to Fort Stevens, and although
0: driven back, is still not
2: far distant. City-wide order. Orders
0: are given that every officer and man who leaves his post shall be shot. At the conclusion of the first day of the battle, the soldiers inside Fort Stevens had proven their worth and remained in control of the fort. Early's forces retired into southern Maryland and began the long night of anticipation for the next day of battle. Shortly before the sun set on that first day of battle, the faint calls of boat whistles echoed up the 7th Street Pike from the docks in downtown Washington. Help for the beleaguered soldiers inside Fort Stevens had arrived. On July 9, 1864, as Lew Wallace's Union forces engaged Early's troops at Monocacy Creek, Maryland, Washington, D.C. realized it needed help. In addition to calling forth the Quartermasters and Veterans Reserve Corps, General Ulysses S. Grant, still in the Shenandoah Valley, was telegraphed of the impending battle. Grant hastily sent by steamboat and rail two divisions of the Union Army Sixth Corps under the command of General Horatio Wright. The Sixth Corps was a battle-hardened group that saw actions at places with such names as Manassas, Antietam, and Gettysburg. The Sixth Corps were old adversaries of Jubal Early, John Breckinridge, and the troops that were attacking Washington, D.C. July 11, 1864,
3: 8 a.m., Lieutenant General Grant, yours of 10.30 p.m. yesterday received, and very satisfactory. The enemy will learn of Wright's arrival, and then the difficulty will be to unite Wright and Hunter south of the enemy before he will
0: recross the Potomac. Abraham Lincoln. As the sun rose on the battlefield on July 12, 1864, Jubal early surveyed the land. Noticing the flag of the Sixth Corps, a Greek cross flying beside that of the American flag in Fort Stevens, he knew the chances of taking the city were nil. Nevertheless, after coming so far, he would attempt to take the fort once again. But Early knew that the day would be harder than the previous, as seasoned ranks of men from New York, Pennsylvania, Vermont, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Rhode Island waiting for Early's troops. Heading back into the fort and looking to the left of the cannon, you will see a stone monument affixed upon the parapet. It is here that President Abraham Lincoln came to watch that second day of the battle and came within three feet of losing his life. The tour will continue once you have reached the monument. The stone monument on top of the parapet of Fort Stevens was dedicated by the veterans of the Battle of Fort Stevens on July 12, 1920. Originally, the monument was placed in the area of the flagpole, but was resituated on the parapet at the conclusion of the reconstruction of the fort and powder magazine by the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s. The monument is dedicated to an event that occurred on the second day of the battle in which President Abraham Lincoln stood on the parapet and came under direct fire of Confederate sharpshooters. It is the only time in American history in which an acting president came under direct fire from an enemy combatant. Standing next to the Lincoln Stone and looking northward, one will see the Walter Reed Army Medical Center, located less than a half a mile away. This is the battlefield for the second day of the Battle of Fort Stevens. Throughout the evening of July 11th, the Sixth Corps had moved out onto the battlefield and waited for movement from the Confederate invaders. On the second day of the Battle of Fort Stevens, July 12th, 1864, Jubal Early found the forts and surrounding area to be garrisoned by regiments of the Union Army Sixth Corps. More of a skirmish line than that of a full-fledged hand-to-hand engagement, Early's forces were stalled on this second day of the battle, making it unable to approach any closer to the fort. The confusion and chaos that gripped the city on the previous day had all but dissipated. The Battle of Fort Stevens suddenly became a curiosity to the citizens of Washington. So... While the soldiers on the battlefield and inside Fort Stevens valiantly fought to defend the nation's capital, the citizenry of Washington, D.C. flocked to the forts to see their efforts. Carriages snarled the roadways as the gentry of Washington, D.C. came to view the spectacle. One of these individuals was President Abraham Lincoln. President Lincoln arrived at the fort by carriage early on the morning of July 12th. Along with his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, the two entered the fort to see the men of Fort Stevens repel the Confederate invaders. But seeing the men inside of the fort was not enough for the President. He wanted to see the battle. So, Mr. Lincoln climbed atop the parapet to witness what was transpiring on the battlefield in front of him. Several generals and officers accompanied the President onto this dangerous perch to see the Sixth Corps repel Jubal Early's forces. Scattered throughout the battlefield were a few trees and patches of scrub brush. Hidden in these spots were Confederate sharpshooters, snipers trained to hit a target at distances of well over 800 yards. Imagine that you're one of these sharpshooters. You have traveled well over 200 miles in a month, You have fought almost every day of that journey to reach the gates of Washington, D.C. With you and your comrades is the former Vice President of the United States. Imagine the humiliation of the North if you can get John Breckinridge back into Washington, D.C. and take the city for the Confederacy. But you know that with the Sixth Corps here, that dream is all but gone. But what's this? While hiding in the bushes and trees, you see Abraham Lincoln himself standing on top of Fort Stevens. You are a sharpshooter for the Confederate States of America. You have invaded the capital of your enemy, and the leader of that enemy is within plain sight and within distance of your weapon. What are you going to do? While standing atop the parapet of Fort Stevens... President Lincoln was transfixed on the battlefield. Bullets from Confederate snipers whizzed by him, but he seemed oblivious to the danger. It was not until a surgeon, standing three feet to the president's right, was severely wounded in the leg that the reality of the situation became apparent. It was then that several people did their best to encourage the president down from the parapet and back into the safety of the fort.
4: Mr. President, I know you're the commander of the armies of the United States, but I'm in command here, and as you are not safe where you are standing, I ordered you to come down. Mr. President, will you please come down? You're a perfect mark for the sharpshooters.
2: Mr. President, you are standing within range of 500 rebel rifles.
0: Please come down to a safer place. If you do not, it will be my duty to call a file of men and make you. Even Elizabeth Thomas, the original landowner to the land of Fort Stevens, voiced her concern about the president while she aided the soldiers inside Fort Stevens.
2: My God, make that fool get off the hill and come in here.
0: But it would be the remarks of a young captain inside the fort that would be the most known and most popularized in American history. The remark is simple, straightforward, and to the point.
2: Get down! You damn fool.
0: That young officer would eventually become a justice on the United States Supreme Court. His name was Oliver Wendell Holmes. It is uncertain as to whom President Lincoln heard that encouraged him off the parapet. With all the noise going on inside Fort Stevens, he might have heard all of the comments or perhaps none. Either way... President Lincoln came down from the parapet and watched as Union soldiers continued to send Jubal Early's troops retreating into southern Maryland and away from Washington, D.C. The Battle of Fort Stevens was over. Washington, D.C. had been saved. But as with any other battle, injuries and deaths occurred. After all southern forces had fled the area, the grim duty of collecting the wounded and dead began. Forty of the Union soldiers who died on the battlefield were placed to rest just a few blocks north of Fort Stevens. President Lincoln himself came to the burial of these brave men and dedicated their resting place as hallowed ground. Located at 6625 Georgia Avenue, Battleground National Cemetery is one of the nation's smallest national cemeteries and is open to visit during daylight hours. The Battle of Fort Stevens is considered in the annals of American history as a Union victory. Lee's plan to relieve pressure off of Richmond had worked but the outcome still was the same. The Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia eventually fell and shortly thereafter the war came to an end. Jubal Early and John Breckinridge fled the country at the war's end and spent several years traveling abroad before returning to the United States. Robert E. Lee's bad old man never apologized for his attack on Washington, D.C., nor did Early ever retake the oath of allegiance to the United States, as was the common practice for those who fought for the Confederacy. The forts that defended Washington, D.C. had served their purpose. When the Civil War ended, the forts were decommissioned and most of the lands were returned back to the private owners. However, Elizabeth Thomas's land was never returned to her. Recalling President Lincoln and the disposition of her land, Elizabeth Thomas had this to say.
2: Had he lived, I know the claim for my losses would have been paid.
0: Decades later, after Elizabeth Thomas's death, her family was eventually compensated for the use of the land. President Lincoln never saw the true end of the Civil War. Although he missed a Confederate bullet at Fort Stevens in July of 1864 and saw Washington, D.C. saved, he was not so fortunate to miss an assassin's bullet nine months later, causing him to miss the reunification of this country. Before his death, President Lincoln was once quoted as saying that History is not history unless it is the truth. The truth of the story of Fort Stevens does not just lie with the Battle of Fort Stevens or the commemorative stone dedicated to President Lincoln. Locked in the earthwork walls, the empty gun mounts, and the silent cannon of Fort Stevens, are also the stories of struggle and sacrifice of those who gave everything to ensure the success of the fort, the preservation of our nation and its capital, and the rights for all citizens of the United States. All of these stories combined make up the history, the truth, as Lincoln would have called it, of Fort Stevens. Today, Fort Stevens Battleground National Cemetery and seven other Civil War installations are under the protection and stewardship of Rock Creek Park, a unit of the National Park Service. We thank you for participating in Rock Creek Park's self-guided tour of Fort Stevens and encourage you to visit the other Civil War installations that Rock Creek Park proudly preserves and protects as lessons from the past for future generations. Additional information on Fort Stevens, Battleground National Cemetery, and the other defenses of Washington can be obtained at the Rock Creek Park Nature Center. The Nature Center is located at 5200 Glover Road, Northwest, and is open Wednesdays through Sundays, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Feel free to call us at 202-895-6070 or visit us on the web at www npsgovernor slash R O C R